Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. I'm joined on today's show by Greg Lindsay who is a journalist, urbanist, futurist and speaker based out of New York. And this week we let the reins off a little bit and venture into discussing the big picture, future housing trends and smart cities all within the overall context of PropTech. And if you want to know where the money is heading for the future, as Greg puts it, then this one is for you. Greg is a very smart and interesting speaker, and you'll want to hear what he has to say, I'm sure. As much as what he doesn't say. So here we go. Let's have a listen to our discussion now. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Hi everybody, it's uh, it's Richard Brown again, obviously with the another episode of the Property Voice podcast in our series of uh, on on, on uh, prop tech, and I'm very pleased to be uh, to have with me today Greg Lindsay. First of all, Greg, are you there? <laughs> I am indeed, Richard, coming to you live from New York. Exactly. Thanks for joining me live from New York. That was a little bit of an in joke because we had a slight glitch, didn't we? But. Um, uh, we're, we're talking in this whole series about property technology, and what I really wanted to talk to you about was a little bit of you know something down down the future, and just open our minds a little bit as to what's coming. But perhaps it'd be great if you wouldn't mind giving us a bit of context uh, about about you and your background, so people know where you're coming from and your sort of area of, of knowledge and expertise. Would that be okay? So yeah, I'm a journalist by training. I write for a fast company magazine here in the States, but then I've branched out into uh, studying cities worldwide. So I'm a senior fellow at New Cities, uh, which is based out of Montreal. Uh, I'm the urbanist in residence at BMW Mini's Tech Accelerator here in New York, uh, and work with various groups looking at how the future of mobility, whether it's bicycles or autonomous vehicles, will shape how and where we live. Uh, I worked with the Atlantic Council, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C., to look at how smart homes and the Internet of Things will affect cybersecurity uh, and work on a number of projects, looking at sort of how, you know, technology and the built environment will come together uh, to reshape how and where we live and work and play and love. Fantastic. Thank you for that introduction. I think you're involved in so many different things and, um, you know, it's going to be a fascinating conversation. The, the series I've had is all about property technology, and I've kind of focused on What's here and now, but also what's coming generally with the guests that I've had on, on, the, on the podcast so far. And I'm recording this before we finish, actually. But I imagine this is going to be one of the, if not the final, or one, one of the near final episodes that we'll share. Because what I'd really be interested in talking to you about is maybe the future of, of housing, how we live, etc. If you think about my audience, it's uh, mainly residential property investors who hold an asset or several assets for decades. Um, you know, and that asset is going to produce an income for them and they need to provide a service for the occupants of that property um, over that period of time. So I'm really interested in how we get from today to maybe a couple of decades down the line and maybe there are a couple of signposts along the way because property developers in the meantime have got a shorter term horizon. 
So uh, what a you know what a what a property developer is going to need to to look at uh, producing over the next say five to ten years, and what a long term buy and hold residential investor is going to look um, over the next. 10, 20 years or, or even more. I mean, I, I don't want to get onto, you know, colonizing Mars too much, but um, just having an eye on that. So that was a very long-winded way of queuing up our conversation. But I really wanted to center it around some of the mega trends that are out there and, and this whole concept of smart cities and all the things that kind of fall out of that. So um, if I sort of say those things, what's resonating in your mind, Greg, as a result of me pitching it that way? And I could, I promise I'll make the, the questions a little bit more specific as we get along. Well, that's right. When you say smart cities, I think of, you know, immediately reach for my uh, proverbial gun, as they say, because, uh, you know, I mean, smart cities, for example, is, is an idea that has been preached since, what, the Jetsons on American television in the 50s and, and Jacques Tati films in the 1960s of these, you know, these hyper automated, super intelligent homes. Uh, and, you know, and that's still the vision with the Internet of Things and others. And, and to me, that's gotten interesting, that discussion, because, you know, when you actually poll, uh, you know, whether it's Britons or Americans and others, is that they realize that, you know, the promises of a smart home are not all they're, they're cracked up to be. Um, you know, the, the notion that we should take our homes and, and fill them with Internet connected devices that can be easily hackable uh, or filled with, you know, malware or, or viruses uh, is, I think, gives a lot of people pause. There's a, there's a great saying, which I love. Um, you know, that uh, Arthur C. Clarke, you know, the science fiction author famously said that any technology that's sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, there's a great corollary that, you know, in that future, any sufficiently advanced hacking uh, will feel like a haunting, it's like living in a haunted house. So, um, so I think there's some, some real things we should think about in terms of exactly how we want technology to, to augment our lives. Because for the next five to 10 years, for you know, the foreseeable future is, is that, you know, smart homes, the Internet of Things, all these sort of trends are, are leading us towards uh, a world where everything is charged by the minute or by the service, um, whether that is, you know, um, you know, whether that's sort of mobility on demand, what we've done with Uber, for example, which has trained Americans and, and, and many people around the world that, you know, you push a button and a car comes and charges you by the mile rather than owning a vehicle, uh, what Airbnb has done by turning any home into a potential revenue generating asset. Uh, you know, a hotel anywhere, and and and, and all of that's going to converge. I and mean, one of the areas that I'm looking at right now uh, for property tech is looking at you know the rise of shared workspaces and shared living spaces. Mm. Um, whether it's you know we we work, which is now a 20 billion dollar startup that spawned We Live, which is combining homes and digital services and office space into a single monthly membership, all in one. Um, uh, BMW Mini has now spawned its own version of that, Mini Living, which which combines that plus mobility services. So I think it's going to be interesting, you know, one of the trends we're going to see over the next five to 10 years, partly, I think, due to economics as well and demographics, uh, is that, you know, the notion that you're going to own a property asset uh, is going to give way to, yeah, the sort of membership asset light model. You know, we've already seen hotel companies and real estate companies move towards asset light management. We're going to see individuals do that as well um, because they either can't or won't want to actually pay for the underlying asset, whether it's a home or a car or other things. So it would be so to me that gets interesting because you can start mixing up these various assets, right? You know, your home is no longer just a home. It's you're now living above the shop again, and that shop happens to be a, a co-working space. Um, or, you know, you might be, you know, be part of these sort of interesting collectives uh, and other things like that. So so that's that's one major trend uh, that doesn't get us too far into moonships. Um, <laughs> the other one that I think is interesting is is going to be autonomous vehicles, right? You know, we, that that appears to be an unstoppable force at this point. The the moral clarity of how many lives we can save through using autonomous vehicles and taking it away from humans makes it uh, almost inarguable. 
So it's my question is, is what kind of world will autonomous vehicles create? What's going to move? Um, you know, will we see people living hours outside of major cities and autonomous vehicles whisk them in and out? Uh, will we see people, you know, rush to live in denser cities where things can be delivered to them, you know, within the hour kind of thing like that? Uh, you know, continuing that trend of, of on-demand e-commerce? Um, I think these are all really interesting questions. And, and I particularly think when it comes to AVs is I think we're about to enter a world filled with robots. Um, you know, it's not going to be an autonomous car. It's going to be the autonomous trash can uh, or, or the autonomous, you know, mailbox or the autonomous delivery bot that's bringing to you your groceries from around the corner. Um, these are the things I think they're going to get automated first before we think about, you know, wheeling around a couple tons of steel. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things I wanted to pick up there, to be honest. And the, the whole sort of sharing economy membership asset uh, is definitely relevant. I think the, the robots or artificial intelligence is, is clearly, you know, a big trend on the on, on the sort of output. What was interesting, though, equally, was what you talked about with smart homes and smart cities, because we've, we've spoken a bit about this already on the uh, on, on this series you know, as being, being a good thing. But I, I also think there is a dark side. <laughs> There's a dark side to it. And I shared recently, I think Cheddar did a, a video that talks about, well, who, who exactly does smart homes benefit? Question mark. And it's like, well, well it benefits me because I can, you know, turn on the TV from a voice com- voice activated device or something like that. Makes my life easier, etc. cetera. Um, but equally, the manufacturers benefit because they can get feedback on their technology and perhaps, you know, uh, governments and planners and that, those kind of people can benefit too if they can plug into the data set. So there's a whole bunch of people who can benefit, but there's also a bunch of risks, isn't there? Because, you know, data sharing, privacy, hacking, you know, general security, as you've kind of alluded to, um, it's it, it's not as straightforward as perhaps uh, it might, you know, it might sound at first glance, is it? No, I, I mean, yeah, and I think the point I would add is, is you know, it, it's not equal. I mean, it's very unequal. So, so 15 years ago, you know, the notion of a smart home was was centered on the, the notion of a of a of a smart refrigerator. You have a your refrigerator would be connected to the internet, which Samsung produced and sold for thousands and thousands of dollars, which of course nobody bought. Uh, and that was the notion, right? You know, you you know, you take notes on your fridge or replace the milk when it was gone. Uh, and that has evolved. Now Amazon will gladly or will shortly gladly supply you with an internet connected fridge tied up with Alexa. Uh, but you know, it'll collect that data and it will and it will start shipping you milk before you've even ordered it because they have a patent for that. You know, we can imagine an internet of things where it's really dominated by the major data collectors on this. And, and of course, you know, the, they offer the promise of convenience and it's marginally more convenient. But, um, but yeah, it's, I think it's become a fairly unequal trade. Um, the area where I do think there's, you know, incredible power for, for smart homes and I think where we're going to see leaps and bounds is really what these systems can do for energy efficiency, water efficiency and elsewhere. And that's, that was the promise of, you know, smart cities a decade ago when IBM and others started promoting this idea to governments. Uh, is that we can take these systems and make them more efficient. So, so I'm looking forward to, from a property perspective, is you know, is that we're going to be able to build much more self-sufficient homes or much more cooperative homes where you know we can imagine a, a solar energy stack where you have solar panels on your roof that connects to a smart thermostat that connects to a battery in your garage that connects to your autonomous electric car. This is mostly what Tesla is trying to sell in the United States right now through various mergers. And you know, if we take that and we can imagine neighborhood microgrids that can share energy with each other, uh, we can start to imagine more resilient, more cooperative neighborhoods. Uh, and you know, of course, homes that are able to lower their costs and 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 sort of create this value for residents. And you know, when you poll, you know, Americans in Britain, like that's where they see the value. The only thing they want from smart homes at this point is lower utility bills. They've really stopped buying the hype at this point. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I kind of framed this conversation, um, whether it's you know in the introduction or certainly before we started talking, Greg, about mega trends. But what it's no point just talking about mega trends. It's the mega trends. It's the impact of those mega trends on how we're going to live. And certainly, one of the mega trends is the depletion of uh, of the Earth's natural resources, energy being you know a key one. Uh, you know, we're running out of carbon-based fuels. We need to, you know, develop more sustainable forms of energy. And I agree. Uh, again, conversations we've been having about, um, you know, having some of the, some of the, at least some of the uh, energy that we use in our home provided by sustainable resources. So we need things like solar panels and wind and, um, you know, re- renewable heat uh, heat pumps and this sort of thing being built into our properties. Uh, that certainly seems to me to be a trend for the future. And you've taken it on another level with these sort of microgrids and this sort of thing and perhaps, you know, sharing um, locally the uh, the resources rather than having a, a national grid to have a local microgrid, if I interpreted your, your reading correctly. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I mean, one of the most interesting startups that I've met recently was a German one called Sonnen. Uh, and that's essentially what they're doing. It's, I mean, they sell a device, a, a home battery that, that is very reminiscent of the Tesla Powerwall uh, or, you know, several other products. But, you know, it's a beautiful white slab. And, and yeah, not only, of course, you know, does it collect energy from your solar panels. And the Germans, of course, have, you know, the Energiewende, which is their huge national initiative to shift towards renewables. Um, but, you know, but also created, you know, home power plants. Uh, essentially, you know, that your neighbors would basically form, you know, your own local neighborhood power grid, uh, and you know, and their software manages it and will sell it back to the grid for you. And 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 that to me is really interesting. This notion of not just self sufficiency, but you know, but yeah, generating assets off your home, generating electricity, and being able to sell it back, and having software manage that task for you. I mean, that to me goes a lot further than just you know being able to have Alexa turn your lights on or off and then hope that you know it's not hacked by the latest worm going around um, and it'll be interesting to see you know see where this goes as well with mobility I mean the most interesting trends in urban mobility for example are again they're not autonomous cars a, 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 you know replacing a, a car that you drive with a car that drives you doesn't change much in terms of urban form but you know it'll be interesting to see again how and where people live if mobility becomes something that is just provided to you I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in following uh, trends in sort of multifamily living where, you know, mm. if we imagine very inexpensive autonomous vehicles, it could be that, you know, that, that every building comes with its own very cheap to operate autonomous shuttle. But, you know, mobility is just, it's just a freebie. It's another amenity or a perk that you would get in belonging to your building. Um, and, you know, we've seen, you know, here in the States where I follow the costs of, of building parking spaces, you know, parking is, of course, hugely expensive for developers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're seeing in several cases of developers that are actually subsidizing and incentivizing their residents to give up their cars uh, and instead providing them with memberships and car sharing and bicycle sharing programs and giving them vouchers for Uber and other programs in an attempt to, to get them out of their cars and avoid building that parking. And I think there's some really interesting trends about that as well, about, you know, what we can do to densify cities and, and create more housing, more valuable housing in the, you know, the dense urban cores where, you know, people are demonstrating a preference with their dollars and, and pounds for living. Yeah, and you talk about densifying cities and, and one of the major trends certainly of the last century is urbanization, moving to the city from rural areas. Um, I'm, I'm imagining, uh, actually, there could be two ways that could go, couldn't it? Are we going to do more of that? Or do you think perhaps with uh, breakthroughs in certainly mobility that we could actually have a more efficient, you know, pipeline service if you like from uh, remote satellite areas into de- into cities for working purposes which way do you see it going or do you see a mix and match approach 
Well, the very big picture is that uh, cities only ever get less dense over time. I mean, you know, that, um, you know, the, the urban sprawl continues. No one's ever been able to stop sprawl. I mean, even London, you know, seeing, of course, you know, sprawl going on beyond the green belt. Um, and this is, you know, continuing the world over. Every mega city is growing as fast, if not faster, horizontally as it is vertically. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, again, tying back to some of the trends we've seen in, in you know, the sharing economy and, and co-living and co-working is, is that, you know, I think there's an interesting trend. I've seen it in the States, I've seen it in Australia and elsewhere of, you know, people living, the, leaving the mega cities like a London or New York or San Francisco, and they're heading to, you know, smaller university towns, uh, heading to secondary cities which are acquiring, you know, these sort of urban amenities. I mean, here in the United States, you know, the, the, the cities and the suburbs are blurring together. You're seeing more dense walkable pockets uh, are popping up in formerly, you know, pure residential suburbia. Um, you're seeing suburban amenities start appearing in cities. And, and to me, it's not about, you know, uh, city versus suburbia anymore. It's about where can we build walkable places that people can get to. And that's, you know, where there's tremendous value. Um, my favorite statistic they look talking about is by Christopher Leinberger, who's a researcher at the Brookings Institute uh, and George Washington University, where he's created this notion of walkable urban places, walk-ups. Uh, and he's done some some data research with uh, with walk score, which of course calculates the walkability of a neighborhood or a home on a scale of zero to one hundred. And in Greater Washington D.C., for example, he's shown that for every point above a score of seventy uh, on walk score, it'll add a point will add twenty dollars per square foot in our case to the value of a home. So you'd have to do some conversions, of course, for currency and, and space, but it shows that, you know, that there's a fairly linear relationship between walkability and what people are willing to pay for residences. And so, so yeah, there's a whole, you know, there's a whole boom waiting that's going to be enabled by this technology, by mobility and elsewhere, as we build these sort of more urban pockets and former suburbs where people move to these, you know, these smaller walkable places uh, in, in smaller towns. And so, yeah, so I guess the short answer is, is I think we're going to see more of all of the above. And I think particularly we're going to see people start to flame out on the high cost of living in London, New York, and elsewhere and start seeking these smaller yet urbane places to live because the technology just makes it so much easier to maintain the lifestyle they want, but at a much lower price. And this is particularly true demographically as the so-called millennials now are, are getting heavily into their childbearing years. I think they're going to have less and less patience to bear you know, very high rental, places, rental prices in their cities. Yeah, I, I can see that, and I can see the, the the call for that. And I think when you talk about walkability, um, you know, walkability means the access to you know things that you need, amenities, you know, shops, restaurants, uh, bars, uh, public services, uh, but also transport hubs because you know you still got to work pretty much. I know that we'll probably end up working less one day, but in the short term, you know, we still got to work to derive an income. So transport hubs, for example. So is that is that what's implied in in the walk walkability sort of score? Uh, access to these amenities and transport hubs? No, absolutely. I mean, I think we're going to see, I mean, this goes back to what cities should do about autonomous vehicles. I've seen plenty of people argue that we should never invest in public transport again because AVs will make them redundant. This makes me, you know, quiver in fear and, and horror when I think about that. Um, but I think, you know, I think, yeah, I think we're going to see the rise of new types of mobility. I mean, you know, here in the States again, and, I, and also this is true in London about, you know, building uh, new mobility hubs where we're seeing, you know, bus networks connect to bicycling. Uh, we're going to see autonomous shuttles connect to, you know, uh, dockless bike sharing. Uh, in China, for example, I mean, I think the most, the most transformative, by the way, urban tech in China over the last year has been the rise of dockless bike sharing. And, you, you know, your, your, your listeners may have uh, seen the photos of, 
you know, thousands of bicycles piled up in garbage heaps of people who've discarded them. And that gets a lot of press. But, you know, in, in, in China in the last year, the amount of people cycling every day has doubled in a single year. And it's actually bit into car ownership rates. Um, that's what happens, I guess, if you pump enough money, enough bicycles into the system. So we can start to imagine that, you know, that, you know, future mobility where, you know, people are going to start taking more and more bicycles or urban or, or electric scooters or other technologies that will make it easier to cover the so-called last mile of that. So, so we can imagine, you know, coming off of these transport hubs, you know, the, the you know, the tube or, or other major bus stops, it's going to be easier and easier for people to connect to them at the very edges. And that's going to allow us to, you know, densify the cities we have and also, again, create these sort of new nodes at the very edge of the urban periphery that's going to make it easy for people to to access the core yeah it is it's always this last mile of uh of anything isn't it that makes the, the big difference the intercity connections or inter you know country into you know continent connections can be taken care of but it's so it's that last mile of uh you know where how people get from the, the hub to the home um but and, and the point i'm making with this is that um you know, surely it's going to be better from a property point of view to try and have homes which are close to those links, um, you know, to try and take something away from from this sort of trend that, that's emerging. Um, but equally, uh, you talked about co-living um, earlier and, and, and sort of membership assets and that sort of thing, uh, sharing the sharing economy. Uh, you mentioned already, I think, We Live. And just explain a little bit about we live and others like it and and what they're doing and whether you see that as a a significant and growing trend that we ought to be aware of or is it just a niche that you know a new niche which is just going to be there is it going to be a big thing or a little thing in other words that's a great question i mean if i knew if it was going to be the biggest thing i would of course invest in in the in them as soon as i could um yeah, I would, so we live in this case comes out of WeWork, which of course is famous, you know, one of the world's most highly valued startups, which you know is essentially making uh, managed offices cooler than they can possibly be. Um, and WeWork, in its, in its efforts to justify its twenty billion dollar market cap, is of course expanding in other areas, whether it's education or, in this case, residences. And so we live. It's in two buildings in the United States. The third will be in one in New York and Manhattan, one in Washington D.C. The third's coming to Seattle. Um, and it's the notion, yeah, of a sort of managed membership in residential property. And so, you know, it's an apartment building, but of course there's, you know, communal amenities, whether it's, you know, coffee bars or, or you know, or alcohol bars or, you know, laundry rooms and things like this. But it's this notion of, you know, it's, it's a turnkey membership. You're paying, you know, all in monthly. There's no permanent lease. Um, to me, the interesting killer app of the model is, is that you know, they and others like them, like the collective in London that are creating branches in other cities, will allow you to move around the world on 30 days notice. Uh, Rome is another one of these chains. And so, so, so far, it's sort of pitched at, you know, again, this sort of, you know, entrepreneurial young class of people mm-hmm. who just want to drift around the world and hang out with others like them. But, you know, but when you talk to the, the, the staff of We Live, you know, the designers behind it, they argue this is part of this larger trend. Uh, you know, uh, we're seeing, you know, the baby boomers are, of course, aging in place. Uh, many of them own homes in, in suburbs where they are going to feel isolated uh, or perhaps inaccessible. I, I think there's a huge calamity coming in the United States where, you know, where baby boomers have built suburban homes where the bedrooms are upstairs are going to have difficulty accessing their own homes before long. Uh, and so, you know, so the We Live team argues that, yeah, this is going to become a, a multi-generational form of housing, anywhere from, you know, 20-somethings to young families to elderly families, they've seen this in their own buildings, um, who are seeking this sort of larger communal sense. And, and they're part of their pitches, and this is, of course, their marketing, um, is that, you know, is that, you know, human society traditionally, historically, over thousands of years, has been much more, of course, communal and tribal based than it is in, you know, Western 
post-industrial capitalism. So yeah, so they're arguing that people are going to seek seek this out. And there might be some merits to that. I think equally there's the whole flip side of that, of course, is you know, it's yeah, the fiscal austerity, you know, the difficulty of actually owning a home. This is a highly evolved form of renting. Um, and we can sort of see all that too. And that arguably could drive the trend as well. Um, but you know, again, I think it's I think it's sort of interesting in the sense of, you know, is that, you know, rather than own a home, rather than struggle to pay for it, rather than struggle to decorate it, acquire all these assets. Uh, you know, for a time in your life, whether it is when you're young or whether it's post-divorce or post your children have moved out, um, there might be a time in which case you want to live asset life and live with more people and, and focus on that flexibility rather than maintaining the asset. And, and it'll be interesting to see how people design these programs. It's not going to be about, you know, the building. It's going to be about programming. It's going to be about brand. And, and I think that to me is the most interesting part of this that I think has not really ever come to you know, residential markets are becoming much more hospitality focused, which is the same in, in office as well, I should point out. You know, um, you know, WeWork has built its success on taking a hospitality model and applying it to office space um, and a brand to office space that's never really existed. So um, so it'll be interesting to see how, how these evolve. I, I think the most interesting one, as I mentioned earlier, is mini living. I mean, we're seeing automotive companies realize that, you know, there's value in creating essentially a lifestyle brand, uh, you know, instead of just a mobility brand. Mini, it stands for comprehensive minimalist design. You can do that with a building that offers you co-living, co-working, and a car sharing membership all in one without having to pay for any of the individual pieces. So it'll be interesting to see how much this appeals to people. Yeah, me too. I, I think I definitely buy into, you know, it's a, you know, you've just left college, university, whatever, and you're young and fairly free and you go and take up the, your first employment or your second employment role in a, in a major city, you know, something like, uh, you know, uh, the, the collective or something like that would, would seem an ideal transition from student accommodation to young person accommodation, you know, for the first few years of your working career. And you've got this community feel um, to it. You know, you've got somewhere to lay your head, which is probably not very big, but it's well designed. Uh, it's in a large facility. You've got a community aspect to it. I, I, I get that. It makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure I totally get, you know, the intergenerational part of it, but maybe I can see alternatives where that applies. So certainly seeing communities where, you know, you got, uh, for example, the elderly now, um, you know, they traditionally in the UK, you know, the Englishman's house is his castle. I don't know if you've heard that phrase, but, um, you know, a lot, yeah. of, a lot of people, they, they buy a house, they own it. And then, you know, they're living in a house far too big for them. Uh, it's on a couple of stories which they can't climb anymore um, as they get older. Uh, and they're very, very lonely. Uh, they're just some of the points. And, and it might make more sense for them to live in a sort of a shared living community of similar people, perhaps with uh, amenities and support, which can, can help them in their in our old age. I can definitely see a trend at that end of the market as well. Uh, and, and maybe even for this, you mentioned multi-generational homes, where you've got all of these people living together, youngsters, you know, the, the young adult, the elderly, and of course, the, the core uh, middle-aged family in, in between. So I, I can see elements of these things coming, but maybe not all in one place, but a trend, you know, that we're shifting away perhaps from how we use housing today, at least, and, and to think of a different landscape. But would you say that was fair? I think so. You know, it's interesting to me that people, that when they talk about, you know, uh, co-living, they sneer at it as, as dormitory living. You know, it's basically, you know, uh, you know, extended universities, which my response is, what's so wrong with that? I mean, you know, there's, there, it's, a, it's an interesting time to meet people and experiment and do that. And I think, I don't know, personally, and I say this, of course, as, as, as a homeowner and, and with a young family, but 
uh, who's nostalgic about my time that way. But um, but I think you know that that time of exploring I think is a powerful time. And and to me it's interesting when I look at co-living is that the trade-offs that you make when you live in these shared shared uh, home environments, shared residences. It's the city of microcosm. You're trading private space for public amenities, and and you know hopefully you're sharing it for you're trading it for enough public anonymity. I mean I think the, I think when those relationships start to go sour is where you're you know you're spending too much time with your neighbors when those relationships have gone bad, or you're expected to spend too much time with them. Um, but you know but I, I think it, it it echoes what we're seeing elsewhere, and this, and and to me there's this larger trend. I mean my mega trend of, of urban development over the next twenty years, particularly in the United States, is, is that you know and this is of course less true in the UK is that here we spent the entire post-war era building a massive suburban landscape that was single-use and siloed, right? We built residential homes in suburbs based on highways that we built for privately-owned automobiles. We built office parks and we built shopping malls. And each one had its own use. They were very scalable. They were very financeable um, and had very favorable tax amortization rates. And, uh, and I think that time is ending. It's ending partly because of technology. It's ending partly because of generational transfer. It's entering because it's ending because of a number of trends. And they're all being remixed back together. And, and as someone who loves cities, that's exciting to me because that's, of course, what makes cities great is surprise. It's the multiple uses. It's the density of, of people and uses. And, uh, and, and it's just going to be a question of how these functions exist. So when we're talking about co-living and co-working, those are experiments and thinking about how we're going to put those pieces back together. And, and, you know, I think it'll be interesting too, is, you know, is that manufacturing of course, when it's done in cities and done in Britain uh, is in many cases, it's much cleaner and quieter than it was done in the past. A lot of prototyping, things like that, uh, or a lot of artisanal work. And so, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to think about, you know, we're going to have multi-residential building, multi-family residential buildings that will also have office programs. that could also have studio programs. Uh, you know, developers at that scale are going to have to think about, putting these pieces together in ways that just haven't been done in years and have never been done inside of high rises. Um, I think Asia is sort of instructive that way to me. I'm very fascinated by Hong Kong and Tokyo and their, you know, their massive mixed use buildings. Um, but, you know, but technology will enable us to discover these things, you know, the, the cell phone and a way of accessing it. Lots of, lots of developers are building digital service platforms. So you can you know, purchase meals, you can book these things. Um, it's come to office first, but I think it's going to be coming to, to multifamily housing uh, second after that, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Um, but but yeah, I think people are making those trade-offs, and I think people are are rediscovering cities and rediscovering communalism in in, in ways they've forgotten. I think after the war. Yeah, I think I think this sort of community thing is is a big driver. I mean, a couple, you said so much there, it's kind of sparking my my thoughts. But we'll try and keep it on a sort of a track. Then the um, community. I, I, I was reading recently that uh, longevity, how long we're going to live, is uh, is largely based on our relationships and community. So people who live the longest tend to have the most, uh, you know, conversations, frankly, uh, interaction with other people. And so, um, you know, if we really grasp hold of this, and by the way, living longer creates its own problems, which I'm sure you're very aware of. Um, but, you know, it, 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 having we've lost community, as you, I think you're suggesting, uh, and maybe we, we, we want to get that back. So having this sort of co-living, it doesn't have to be the dorm style, um, you know, having this co-living sort of uh, theme in the future probably makes a lot of sense. And whether we actually all fully realize that yet or not, I don't know. But I think um, we probably all know there's something a bit missing. I don't, I don't know what it's like on the New, on the New York uh, Metro, but on the London Underground, it's absolutely packed during the rush hour and no one talks to anybody. So, you know, there's, you, you can be a stranger in a big city. And, and, and that's a bit sad, I think, you know. And sometimes you, you hear a news story of uh, an elderly person who's unfortunately passed away and no one knew for several days or perhaps longer. And 
I think that's rather sad. So I think if you know, we maybe we can use technology to to fix some of those problems, and maybe we can you know get back to having community, the pre-war, as you say, uh, environment where we did have more you know open door policy and, and more of a central community hub. Um, do, you, do you think it's going to go back that way, or do you think we're we're just doomed to be isolated individuals living in pods? No, I certainly hope so. I mean, I mean, this uh, to me, this is one of the most promising areas of social networks. I think it's interesting and and sad that you know that we spent the last society spent the last decade building trillions of dollars worth of companies like Facebook and Twitter and others that can connect people on the other side of the world or can connect people in very artificial ways online, but we haven't been able to build connections between people in real time and real space. The companies that have actually are the dating apps. Um, you know, there's various data apps like Tinder, of course, which, you know, flourishes on proximity, the more candidates around you, uh, and some others. And, you know, you know, I don't know the case in Britain, but, you know, reading the New York Times, you know, increasingly the people getting married there have met on these various dating apps. And I know I've been working on a book, toying with a book idea for the last few years with a working title was Engineering Serendipity, which is, of course, an oxymoron. <laughs> but that's what some of this technology enables us to do. Can we identify people and locate people and resources in space and generate connections that otherwise we never would have found. Because, you know, there's all sorts of latent connections between people all around us. Um, it's the question of, you know, can you figure out why you want to know the strangers in your life and, and, and what are the ways you can connect to them? Um, and this, I think, you know, if done right, could be tremendously powerful. Right now we're building, and we have built, you know, um, a surveillance society, right? We, you know, we've built surveillance to a lot of different things to follow our data exhaust and trail how people use the internet and use physical space and realize the value in that. Um, I don't think we've invested as much in helping people connect. Um, just to decide here, I mean, you know, from, from the perspective of your listeners, you know, there's tremendous data sets out there to identify the desire lines of where people want to live in cities or in the suburbs. My, my favorite example of that I should point out uh, is one here from New York uh, where people using data from the, the New York City Taxi Commission, which is all open. Uh, you can sort of look at anonymized pickup and drop off. Uh, they were looking at you know people who were just aging into their childbearing years in Brooklyn, and so the way to figure out where those people were moving to was they figured out who was being dropped off at a fertility clinic on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, uh, and they realized that's where you know the older generation Xers were now moving to. Um, this to me was remarkable that they figured it out, and vaguely sort of horrifying that you know that you could discover you know buried in that, that mound of data this trend, this you know this this deep desire to have children. And you could figure out that that's where, you know, that's where people wanted to live or, or you know, figure out that's who you wanted to, to sell to. Uh, and I think there's data sets like that all over the place. But, you know, can we build technology to enable people to connect to each other versus just simply, you know, surveilling them from afar? I, I don't know. I certainly hope so. And I think it's part and parcel of, you know, if we're going to make co-living or these other uh, uh, trends livable and fun. And, and, of course, you know, we work and others have tried to build internal social networks. Um, they've been partially successful. But. But to me, that's the killer app. That's the app that I would pay almost anything for. It's an app that could tell me, you know, this person who's walking down the street towards me, um, who they are, why I want to know them, and, and tell me something I could say to them in a sentence, in a line, as, they, as we make eye contact for a fleeting second, that would change our lives forever. I agree. I think if we can get this sort of human aspect to it, because I think technology um, is advancing and it's advancing at a very rapid pace. And, and you just put it in just to put it in perspective, you know, the dot com, you know, uh, boom, if you like, was only about 18 years ago. It wasn't actually that long. Uh, and then we've got all these advances. We've already been talking about smart, smart homes, Internet of Things and uh, and other types of technology, technological advances in this conversation. We talk about artificial intelligence, robots, big data, these buzzwords, but they're all fairly new things. And I think sometimes 
technology uh, advancement runs ahead of um, the applications, the true you know applications that will benefit us. So we haven't necessarily found a home or a, or a use for all of the technological advances yet. But uh, probably, we'll, well, I'll say probably, I hope we'll catch up uh, and be able to, you know, genuinely enrich our lives rather than just, you know, we, we have an interface with an Android, uh, you know, when we click a, click a couple of buttons on a smartphone um, whilst we are, you know, eating a, uh, a TV deliver, a dealer, excuse me, TV dinner delivered by a drone. Too many D's in that sentence <laughs> in our in our micropod. So. Um, I, I do believe, I do hope that we'll have this uh, human interaction. But one of the things you talked about equally, um, I don't know if you want to come back on that, but one of the other things I perhaps wanted to take us into was the economics of um, of, of real estate uh, property. Um, you know, public public you know sector, the governments haven't got the money uh, these days, uh, and you know, land and buildings. Well, certainly land is becoming more and more expensive, and therefore less and less affordable. Um, what about the sort of financial implications for the future? Do you see uh, that taken us in a certain direction? That's a great question. And it's one that I have not explored uh, from a market perspective. I, as a, you know, in my academic work and, and elsewhere, I've sort of looked at this about, you know, how can we create more social housing or public housing? Um, I worked on an interesting project a few years ago for the, the Museum of Modern Art here in New York. Um, looking at what we could do after the foreclosure crisis, you know, of course, the financial crisis from now a decade ago. And, um, and so there were some really interesting models. I mean, uh, you know, I don't, I can't deliver any profits from them, but, uh, for example, I'm, I'm putting together a conference in Prague this summer, uh, called Resite that's looking at the future of housing. And one area we're going to explore is, is Baugruppen, which is the German model of sort of collectively financed and designed housing. So it's sort of, you know, local crowdsourcing, bring together a group of people, get an architect, uh, co-design the building, co-finance the building. Um, I'm very curious about, you know, how scalable is that both horizontally? I mean, you know, could you get thousands of people to do that? And, and also vertically, you know, how big of a bow group could you design? Um, and then another area that I'm really interested in for that is, is here in the United States, we have community land trusts, which is, which from an investor standpoint is perverse because it's basically digging a hole in the ground and dumping money into it. Uh, it's, you know, creating social housing by uh, taking the land off the market forever. You could basically build very affordable housing if you remove land speculation. So it's sort of the uh, anathema to, to, uh, to your listeners. But, um, but to me, it was very interesting because what, it, what you have to do then if you want to scale it is you have to, again, you have to focus on these services. We were building co-living designs with this museum exhibit before there was such a thing. So imagining uh, a building that could expand its uses and provide services to residents to generate the cash flow that you would never gain from rents, really, because rents would be largely flat. And then how could we use that to, you know, finance new buildings? Um, and so, you know, it, it was it was ultimately it would ultimately require a huge injection of funds from the public sector or philanthropy and elsewhere, which is why it's never really scaled. But but those are just sort of I think two interesting things that flirt at yeah, how are we going to actually create more housing at these lower price points? Because yeah, it's you know the desirability of, of London and New York and our and our dense cities. Uh, and the creeping on affordability has created this crisis where, you know, I, I think, again, coming back to the, the stats that, you know, cities don't really densify that much. You know, we're trying to throw up as many glass towers as we can, and yet it's still not making a dent in a larger affordability crisis. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, you know, can we create these new collective financial models? I've been talking to people who are very enthusiastic about blockchain, mm -hmm. uh, about, you know, creating, you know, using that to create sort of crowdsource models. I, I think... 
my general take on blockchain is that it's a very energy intensive technology in search of a use. I'm very skeptical about it, given the huge electricity requirements it requires. Um, and given the fact that there's no killer apps for it, but, but some people are very enthusiastic that, you know, that we could use that to build, you know, gigantic crowdsource exchanges for building and financing homes. I hope so, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, it's going to be something like this. It's going to be something that moves beyond the classic financial models, even if that's something like, you know, like we've seen here in the States, you know, uh, Fundrise and some of the other sort of crowdsource investment models that allow you to invest locally, uh, even from a, you know, classic accredited investor standpoint, you know, I, I think that would be very promising. I would love to invest uh, in my local coffee shop, local amenities, local housing beyond my own home to, to ensure that the character of the neighborhood remains. Um, because right now, you know, I think residents, many residents feel that they simply have no real power over the financial makeup of their communities. So, so if we can figure out how to, how to build those tools while, you know, uh, keeping financial safeguards in place, that to me is like, I think the most promising area of prop tech. And obviously regulation is, is the key barrier there. And I'm not sure out of besides lobbying, you know, how one breaks that down. Yeah, I think you raise a good point with the regulation. As far as the uh, the finances are concerned, I was just thinking as you were talking that um, the classic, you know, uh, rent model uh, that we that we property investors have uh, might probably change in the future. Uh, and and there's two two you know potential squeezes on that. Uh, there's probably more, but two in my head right now anyway, which is probably as many as I can hold. <laughs> One is if you look at social housing, that we've got uh, a, a massive you know, welfare burden, certainly in the UK. I don't know what it's like in the US, but you know, the idea of social housing benefits is you know, we, we, we've got less people working to fund the, the welfare state. So there's a squeeze on, on, the, on the benefit budget. So, um, you know, what happens to, to budget you know, rents for social housing? Does that, that squeeze on one end? And the thing, the other one, just picking up a little bit of what you said earlier, I think if I understood the, the thread correctly, and we're already seeing signs of this, is that people are demanding more services from, you know, their their asset, their property. You know, so a user, i.e. A, a guest or a tenant or you know, someone like that, uh, is looking for added value services, concierge services, you know, in, inclusive cleaning, um, you know, perhaps um, some sort of amenity space, uh, that kind of thing, and, and looking for this whole, you know, so that's more of a demand yeah, pull um, in that direction there. So perhaps the idea of just buying a property and renting it out for a set rent over a period of time uh, maybe you know maybe threatened from two points of view at least that I can think of. You probably can think of a lot more, Greg. Well, again, I mean, I think the shared services part. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah, the, the notion, and this is, I mean, this is true in everything, right? We see this trend around us. You know, network effects are everywhere. And so there's this overweening pressure to, you know, become part of these branded service networks. And so, you know, I think, you know, you're going to see Airbnb, uh, if you look at their trajectory, you know, originally they went from, you know, uh, a sort of, you know, you know, couch surfing, stay with families, you know, then it's, it's turned into a sort of distributed hotel chain where now they have their own sort of premium service with elaborate standards of how to hold up to it. Um, you know, Airbnb is is everywhere uh, with that. And so I think you're going to see, you know, uh, competing brands of it. And you're going to see new digital service platforms that'll tie you in. So, yeah, so you're, I, I agree. You're going to need to be able to provide, if not your own internally, you're going to need to start partnering with these platforms that are going to evolve to handle this delivery and, and offer as amenity. And again, this is happening particularly in corporate tenants. I met with a number of startups that are all racing to build that services layer that will add value to, in this case, you know, yeah, to, to occupiers in the corporate sense. But we could totally see that in residential buildings. Why am I going to buy 
a, a, you know, a flat in your building if there's absolutely no service layer. That that could totally become a sort of critical requirement for getting anyone people anyone to pay attention to that. And who's going to provide that? You really want to build your own? Um, you know, we'll, we'll start to see you know, the sort of these competing platforms and, and competing brands on top of that. And you know, that's something that by and large has never really applied to property, right? It's never been a sort of branded experience with you know typography and 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 uh, and you know and all sorts of design requirements. So uh, it'll be interesting to see, you know, uh, I mean, you know, of course it's been done on the individual building and, and all sorts of luxury homes, but I don't think anyone's ever been able to have to think about, you know, the, the sort of, you know, global luxury branding environment. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we're about to enter a whole period of, of interesting disruption there where, you know, you're going to have to think about your, you know, as an investor, you're going to think about consumer branding. Like right? that's never really been a problem here and, and now very much is. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest takeaways, actually, the consumer branding, you know, marketing angle, treating the occupants, whether it's a guest or a tenant, as a customer. Um, you know, and, and a lot of people don't see that. They see a, a power play between a landlord and tenant and, you know, you know who holds the power. Um, but actually, you know, with uh, now people being able to review landlords online and this sort of thing, the power is starting to shift a little bit. Uh, a little bit, <laughs> perhaps towards the uh, the consumer, uh, and so you've got to you actually have to up your game and deliver higher value services. So you weren't you weren't so convinced on the um, the social housing aspect and the finances there, but um, we certainly didn't comment. But I'm wondering, perhaps drawing to um, drawing to some conclusions, I mentioned earlier we've got maybe developers who've got a, a one to five year horizon of you know what to do next, um, as as our some of our audience, and we've got. Uh, property investors who maybe have got a you know several decades uh, timeline you know where they will hold an asset which they'll they'll want to derive an income from. I certainly started investing in property for my pension, um, which you know I would live off until I um, I departed this earth. So apart from things we've talked about, is there anything else that you wanted to add perhaps to the discussion that maybe our listeners could uh, could take away, or even just a summary? Well, I, I guess coming back to, I mean, some of the companies that I've worked with or focused on, I mean, I've done some work in the, in the past year or two for Tish and Spire here in New York, uh, and their various developments. And then I'm also uh, developing a project in the early stages with Brookfield as a research project, uh, of course, the giant Canadian firm. And, you know, and, and I think it's interesting, Brookfield, for example, one of the things they like to talk about is placemaking, uh, which is a term, interestingly, that comes from the very nonprofit project for public spaces here. Which, you know, which developed this idea of, you know, how do you take an unloved, forlorn public space and activate it and program it and get people to use it and use that to generate value for the residences around it. And uh, I think it's really interesting that, you know, you see a, you know, multi, multi-billion dollar giant like Brookfield adopt the notion that to deliver value for itself and its investors is that, not, you know, they're not just building office or retail or residential, if they're now having to program increasingly these elaborate, beautiful public spaces, you know, which when you're doing it in midtown Manhattan, of course, you know, you have to invest heavily and it's very, you know, blue chip. But, um, but you know, I think it's, I think it's interesting that, you know, that, that these companies are thinking about, you know, how do we create a totally branded environment uh, and totally programmed environment to create value for our residents? It's, it, it's, they're moving into sort of urban design, whether they want to or not. Um, and, and I think, you know, we're increasingly have to see that at every scale. So, you know, it's not going to be about just putting in your building. It's about how do you become, uh, as a, as a you know, developer and an investor, how do you become, how do you become invested in your community? How do you unlock the value of the public space? How do you turn the entire community into an amenity 
for you know for your tenants because otherwise they're not going to choose to live there. They they want to think about it in this complete total package. I, I don't think it's about you know just choosing a nice home in an area with good schools anymore. It's about thinking about these larger questions. And so so yeah, the savvy developers and savvy investors are thinking about you know this holistic view of it uh, and thinking about what they can influence. Um, and so that I think that's been my interesting takeaway is listening listening to you know uh, you know real estate chief in to talk about placemaking has been really, really eye-opening. And I'm very curious to see uh, how far they can push that as they become city makers in addition to, to developers. I think that's a very fitting way to, to uh, I've actually written in quotes what you said, whether we want to or not uh, embrace some of this change. Uh, and I think that's a really good way of putting it. Um, so we can choose to embrace it and, and to maybe look at providing uh, more of a total experience, a, a brand, a customer type of uh, service. Uh, instead of your classic, you know, landlord provider space and never, never be seen again type of thing, um, you can choose to lead if you like into that direction and be at the forefront, or you can be dragged kicking and screaming a little bit later on when you've got no no option. So um, <laughs> perhaps that's the uh, that's the real takeaway here. Do you want to be a leader or you know be dragged along uh, later on? And you might not have many options if you're dragged along because you might be overtaken. I was maybe to to start to to wrap. Um, you, you've got a couple of publications or books or things that are probably relevant to our listeners, uh, and and maybe uh, maybe you could mention one or two of those, and also how great people could get hold of you if they wanted to, and, and what should they what should they say to you if they reach out to you? Yeah, so you can find me on the internet. I have my own page at uh, uh, greglindsay.org. There you'll find links uh, to various articles and reports. Um, I'd encourage if you enjoy this podcast, to, to uh, download my report uh, on smart homes and the Internet of Things. It includes a dystopian short story that I wrote about uh, imagining a smart home gone mad. Um, there's some other reports I wrote uh, for the New Cities Foundation on uh, sort of the future of urban mobility in the age of AVs and, and Uber and whatnot, which uh, is also downloadable from there, and, and some writings on looking at sort of where co-living and co-working are going. Uh, and from there, there's a link to my email. You can always email me at my uh, idiosyncratic personal address at greg at babblefish.net, uh, like the Tower of Babel. Uh, and, um, and yeah, in terms of reaching out to me, I mean, I'm, I'm always interested in working on projects. I do a lot of public speaking, uh, and I speak to a lot of groups, real estate investment uh, companies, uh, membership groups about really the future of cities and where it's all going. And, and um, just one point I always come back to in speaking to those groups is, is that, you know, I, I've talked to a number of property investors in, in, in U.S. cities, and, you know, they're now selling off suburban portfolios of, of, of offices and, and malls and focusing on, on where to invest in dense urban districts. My favorite is the first Potomac, which is a big REIT. Uh, you know, they sold off their office parks. And now when they look at locations in Washington, they're looking at protected bike lanes, they're looking at co-working spaces, and they're looking at stops on the Washington Metro. So this focus on mobility, this focus on livability and, and collectivity, I think is all really interesting. And they see that's where the money is. And that sounds like a very fitting way to, to draw a line, to be honest, where that's where the money is. And I think um, we can learn a lot from where those big players, those institutions are, are channeling their money. Um, so, and, and you've shared so many nuggets, uh, to be honest, Greg, in the conversation. I'm, I'm really pleased that we've had this conversation. Thank you. And uh, thanks also for offering some of the resources that uh, that you've uh, laid out there. And I'm going to check my agenda and see if I'm free in Prague, free to go to Prague rather in June. <laughs> but um, it's been a very, very enjoyable conversation. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it myself. So the future of housing and how we live. 
Here are some of the key themes, trends and takeaways from my discussion with Greg now. First, megatrends can help to drive the future of property and prop tech. The shift to urbanization, population growth, mobility, energy efficiency drives, our health needs and technological advancement all featured as having an influence on our future property and housing needs as Greg outlined. Secondly, smart homes and smart cities need to be more than just tech toys. Greg made the point several times that smart homes need to be more than an Alexa-enabled facility to be truly useful, such as being part of a micro power hub and connected to sustainable transport hubs. He also talked about the dark side of smart homes as well, so you might want to watch out for what he has to say on that topic. Next, community living will make a comeback. Now, in the pre-industrial time, society tended to gather together in small communities, which shifted away towards individualism and the rise of the family as a community model over the past 150 years or so. But the need to live more closely together and care for the old or elderly could give rise to greater community-based housing. Be that through co-living buildings, intergenerational homes, or more user-friendly homes for the elderly to live in in future. Next, technology can help us to connect better in real-time, real-place way. As Greg said, we have a surveillance society, not a connected society right now. So imagine how the technology behind apps like Tinder or Foursquare can help us to deliver relevant information about people around us to help enable a sense of community living and and camaraderie, if you like, in, in our society. Housing delivered as a branded, on-demand, consumer-orientated service uh, offering will increase. Several times Greg made this point of the consumer demanding greater services delivered via different economic sharing or crowd-based models and it arose several times through the discussion as I mentioned. Hospitality delivered by clever brands using new platforms sounds quite different to a landlord renting to a tenant they found on Gumtree, doesn't it? The economics of real estate will also change. Unaffordability, welfare funding, and the demand for pay-as-you-use services will give rise to new models of funding and payment of property usage. Crowdfunding, blockchain, big business or philanthropic-backed micro-communities, and the charge by the unit approaches offered by Airbnb and WeWork are all examples of this emerging trend, which, as Greg said, will probably start in the commercial sector before moving more into the residential sector. In short, we might expect to see homes or properties become more of a membership asset-based model. In summary, I'm just going to pick Greg's words, mobility, livability and collectivity. Some large players are now selling off suburban portfolios and instead focusing on dense urban areas as that's where the money is, as Greg put it. As I always like to say, follow the money, uh, then finding ways to uh, densify cities seem to be where the money is heading. So that's the biggest probably takeaway if you, uh, you want to look at what, where, where it's all heading in the future. 
And towards the end, of course, we talked about contacting Greg. And uh, just a reminder, his website is uh, www.greglindsay.org, where you can find links to his book, publications, articles, and blog posts. And of course, it includes what he referenced, the Smart Homes and Internet of Things report, along with looking at the future of automated vehicles and where co-living and co-working is headed. So go and have a, a rummage around his website. I highly recommend you do that. He also mentioned public speaking, and I did actually edit out a section where he talked about an event in Prague in June. You can make, you can hear me refer to it towards the end, but because I recorded the, um, uh, sorry, I released a recording after the event, I decided just to take it out. But Greg does a lot of public speaking, and despite the fact that I managed to release this episode after his his uh, planned and plugged event in Prague uh, back in June, you can find a link to all of the events where Greg will be speaking at on his website. Sadly, there's no more listed in Europe for the remainder of this year, but maybe one of you lovely listeners can help out and put that right and invite him over. There's a link to uh, to these events page in the show notes as well. And finally, you can almost always email Greg as well. I've, I've put a link to his email address in the show notes too. But the reason I delayed releasing my discussion with Greg is that I deliberately wanted this one to be the last discussion with a special guest in this PropTech series. And as you can probably tell, we covered a lot about the big picture and the future of property, smart cities and megatrends within the context of prop tech. I love speaking to people who have such a wealth of knowledge in their subject area, and I hope you enjoyed hearing from Greg Lindsay as well. Okay, so after the big picture this week, next time we shall conduct something of a summary piece with me trying to pull everything together from this series and draw some conclusions. I've not attempted to write it yet, so I hope I can pull it off in a single episode for you. But that's enough for now, I think. The show notes can be found over the website, thepropertyvoice.net, or if you'd like to talk about anything from today's show, receive an introduction to one of my guests, or just talk about property investing more generally, you know you can always email me, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net, and I'd be more than happy to hear from you. But once again, all I'd like to say is thank you very much for listening again this week, And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.